Sterling Fox uh, with uh, Julie Wong, joined on the line from Ontario by Dr. John, Jenna Hennebry. Dr. Hennebry is a senior research associate and co-founder of the International Migration Research Center at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario, and wrote a piece recently talking about migrant workers, very essential to the Canadian economy, not only in her province of Ontario, but equally here in British Columbia, and has some thoughts about the treatment of workers, particularly during the time of COVID-19. Dr. Hennebry, Jenna, welcome. Hi, welcome. It's good, to have, it's good to have you with us, Jenna. I appreciate your time on a Saturday morning. You wrote a piece for The Conversation recently talking about uh, Canadians, uh, Canada, stigmatizing and jeopardizing the health of essential migrant workers. And before we get to the nuts and bolts of what you wrote, let's take a moment, Jenna, and talk about the, uh, the value that uh, essential um, temporary foreign workers represent to the Canadian economy. Sure. Um, we know that uh, certainly in Ontario and in many other provinces, the majority of labor migration or the majority of labor in agriculture is done by migrant workers. So they are absolutely vital to our agricultural sector and to our food supply. Now, we talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the sorts of quarantine and other uh, restrictions imposed upon Canadians who have uh, been abroad and come back home. How do, the, uh, do those conditions and requirements uh, re- imposed upon Canadian citizens differ from the conditions that we impose on temporary foreign workers? It's a good question, because though migrant workers have to quarantine like everyone else when they arrive in Canada, the difference is they're uh, quarantined into typically into on-farm housing or modified housing, uh, which is really not made uh, for uh, physical distancing, nor is it, it made for comfort. <laughs> uh, and uh, often what's happening is migrant workers are being um, uh, put into the quarantine and then pretty much left there. Um, there's really not a lot of follow-up uh, throughout the quarantine period and even beyond uh, if workers uh, are ill. Or We've had a number of cases now where workers have been diagnosed and then put back into quarantine and effectively left without uh, uh, connections, without follow-on from medical uh, experts. Uh, and in one case, a very sad case we've had here in Ontario, the death of one migrant worker uh, who was just 31 years of age. Well, it's, it's pretty obvious double standard at play here then, isn't there, Jenna? Because uh, if, we, uh, if you're a, a person from anywhere else on the planet, you've managed to get a flight into Canada uh, and you have no particular place to go, uh, the government of the province in which you've landed, and there are only, only four airports in the country that you can do this, so BC and Ontario being two of them, uh, the government will put you up in a hotel for two weeks, and they will mm-hmm. and, and they exactly. will insist on checking on you every day, and this, that you are following with your quarantine requirements. And at the end of your two weeks stay, you're free to go. Uh, it sounds a whole lot more, shall we say, plush than a bunkhouse on somebody's farm somewhere. <laughs> exactly, and one of the issues we have is there's such variability in how. Uh, provinces, but also how uh, local public health units are responding. And so some public health units might be doing follow-up visits, but others are doing none. And so uh, it's it's very patchy. There's even cases where workers are being put into um, centers that have been modified, uh, that are, you know, they're calling them isolation zones. Yeah. 
They're not allowing visitors in. It's difficult for volunteers uh, who I work with as well to try to bring food. And uh, often they don't have telephones uh, or access to the Internet during this time as well. Interesting. Now, in your piece, Jenna, you and your co-authors talk about uh, uh, rather than heeding the advice of experts, and you, you, your example is the province of Ontario because that's where you live and that's where a lot of these uh, workers, of course, are happening and all this situation is right under your nose. But it, it's really safe to say, Jenna, that those conditions and circumstances and urgency to the economy apply equally here in British Columbia. But you say the government of Ontario, the Ford government, has gone ahead with a, you call it a mishmash of measures. So rather than heeding the advice of experts was the premise there. So what would the advice of experts been other than what the provincial governments have done? Yeah, um, in that uh, that point, I'm flagging the fact that we formed an expert working group that has members from all across the country, including British Columbia. And we have put together a series of guidelines and recommendations for governments at all levels. Okay. And they include things like um, uh, follow-on testing uh, and uh, uh, communication access immediately, translation uh, available at hospitals and available in, in, uh, on, in uh, phone uh, health, telehealth Ontario, for example, or provincial health uh, information, um, and uh, also on-site inspections, which is really important because what's happening is inspections for compliance are happening virtually. Oh, <laughs> I see. Employers can send in photographs. Right. Um, or if a complaint is, is lodged, then they're phoned up uh, by the federal government. Um, but the provinces can do so much more because, um, and, and BC has actually started to do a little bit more than other provinces. One of the things they've done is they've got a pilot set up where they test and provide information to workers on arrival in the airport. And this is excellent um, because what's happening is workers are actually getting in their hands guidance on what to do sure. and on, on who to call and how to proceed. But that's not happening in, in other provinces. Okay. Uh, and, and it's been very important. The government of BC has been on this uh, 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 people coming from afar uh, bandwagon since very early on in the game. And I think that's affected the outcome uh, that we're able to present to the world. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the fact that you make the point that if migrant workers uh, end up being tested positive for COVID-19, it's entirely likely, Jenna that they caught the disease here, that they did not bring it into Canada from wherever they their point of origin was. Exactly. Um, because uh, particularly those who have come under the Seasonal Agricultural Worker Program, because there are some health screening procedures in place in countries of origin. Um, it doesn't mean, I mean, it's quite possible, I suppose, but it's highly unlikely because of the timing it takes uh, uh, for transmission. Most workers arrive uh healthy mm -hmm. and they're in the quarantine situation and if the quarantine situation is insufficient then we're putting all those other workers at risk as well and then well beyond that quarantine circumstances the the work uh, relationships and housing relationship and uh, that emerges afterwards if if only in quarantine we're making sure there's physical distancing but afterwards uh, we're doing nothing well that's insufficient if they're uh, not provided with masks for example when they can't physical distance when they're on the farm working close together uh, or when they go into the community 
community, then they are at risk of in- encountering um, the virus in the community and then bringing it back to housing that is crowded. Interesting. So um, uh, only got a couple of seconds left here, but uh, in terms of effectively representing the interests of these workers, be it in Ontario or BC or the Maritimes, is there uh, any kind of agency responsible for oversight of any kind? At the provincial level or federal level? Either. <laughs> well, um, from the from the voice of workers, from the perspective of workers, you have ministries of labor, you have um, uh, other organizations and agencies. But the problem is, is they tend to fall outside of many of the regulatory frameworks mm-hmm. um, in in provinces. So we have. Uh, here in Ontario, we know that they fall outside of most uh, employment standards and, and including uh, uh, have fewer rights and protections under Employment Standards Act. So uh, they're really at the behest of employers and the people that are helping them are volunteers, organizations trying to work to support them. And because they tend to not have or provincially we don't uh, protect their rights to unionize, uh, they can't turn to labor unions to help support them. Interesting stuff. So uh, they're uh, essentially on their own, and the uh, the goodwill of their employers actually matters big time in this particular instance, doesn't it? Exactly. And if they're not lucky, they could find themselves not only sick, but removed, sent back to countries of origin. They could find themselves losing their employment, losing their status, and losing subsequent uh, uh, participation in the program in, in, in further years. This is important information, uh, Dr. Jenna Hennebury. We, we appreciate your taking the time to share it with us here in British Columbia, as is the case in, in Ontario. Uh, this is a vital part of our seasonal economy. We rely enormously on temporary foreign workers, particularly in areas like the Okanagan, for all the fruit and the grapes, of course. Uh, and so uh, we, and we are coming to understand how vital this component is, is to our workforce and, and uh, how little attention they receive from the authorities. Thanks for this, Jenna. Good to speak to you. Thank you for spending the time and putting the attention on on this situation. Thank you very much. You're quite welcome. Dr. Jenna Hannabury is uh, with Wilfrid Laurier University in uh, Waterloo, Ontario, where she is the co-founder of the International Migration Research Centre. Time to turn our attention to a a fact that is going on in our midst that is not particularly pleasant to deal with, but nonetheless is very, very much at play. Isolation is key to slowing the spread of COVID-19. We know this. We've learned this the hard way, one might say, but it has worked. However, isolation can have debilitating consequences for many people and indeed their animals. It's a pleasure to welcome Victoria Schroff back to our program. She is a professor at UBC and is also an animal rights lawyer. Victoria, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. We have known, and I wish I was under happier circumstances to talk to you this morning, but this isolation business produces uh, strange results, uh, perhaps anticipated results by some, but unexpected for most of us. We know, for example, statistics from women's shelters are reporting an increase of 300% in terms of domestic abuse during this period of of isolation. Uh, And I would assume, uh, I don't know the number from the SPCA, Victoria, you probably do. I assume it's comparable. Yes, it's uh, what's happening is as you were um, setting up the piece is that COVID-19's isolation has increased domestic violence and animal abuse. And it's got a term because it's getting well known. It's called the link. 
And it's absolutely a fact that animals, women, and children are all linked in the cycle of abuse. So um, animal welfare agencies like the SPCA and other agencies and the police are working together to try and help uh, women at risk. And their, their pets are often um, affected as well. Interesting stuff. Because, you know, uh, the, uh, a lot of people would be going, oh, gee, this is kind of disappointing because it's really been a kind of a good heartwarming story, Vicki, because during COVID, we've been all locked down and isolated in our little little rooms for a very long time. And many of us have come to the conclusion that this is no fun. It would be a lot more bearable if we had a small furry creature in our life to share all of this with. And many, many British Columbians have gone out and adopted creatures, dogs and cats mostly. Uh, And so the adoption rates are up. The occupancy rates in animal shelters are way down. And everybody around us is going, well, this is fantastic. This is great for all parties, except, well, it's not working out well for everyone, is it? No, it certainly isn't. And I think when we spoke the last time, I I still have my caution to say on um, the animals that were adopted hastily because there's always a fear by shelters that the animal could be returned once COVID is over and there's no more need for the pandemic puppy or the COVID kitty. Right. People are going to return their animals. But but today we're really talking about the risk that animals are in um, as are women for um, being um, at a greater risk of domestic violence because of the confinement. And they don't have their usual networks and setups and places to go um, when when they when they would like to flee the violence that they're um, being faced with. It was BC's. Yeah. So when it's time as a. Uh, the, um, the 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 situation where uh, the the violence is uh, you you say you 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 talk in terms of animals and you're a lawyer and you've been through a lot of custody cases among other things in your practice over time and you say and I'd like you to to, to flesh this out a little animals in cases of of uh, conflict between humans can frequently become points of control. What do you mean by that? Well, what happens is the pet becomes weaponized, Sterling. And so if the woman loves the pet, the man who wants to abuse her is going to use the pet as a weapon. Uh, proxy almost, huh? Absolutely. So, so multiple studies have found that battered women report that their pets have been threatened, harmed, and killed by their partners. So oh. I've got some stats, 50 to 70%. Of battered women report that, and um, more than 85% of domestic violence shelters indicate that women coming to their facilities also told them about incidents of pet abuse. So it's a lot more widespread, and those are those stats don't even apply to COVID. COVID basically just makes it more highlighted sure. because there's actually um, a colleague of mine, Pamela Cross, did an article for the Lawyers Daily where I also write. And she said in her piece about, um, she was writing about um, family law, and she said, the European Institute for Gender Equality warns that in times of crisis and natural disasters, there's a documented rise in domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. And as normal life shuts down, victims who are usually women can be exposed to abusers for longer periods of time and cut off from their social and institutional support. And I, what I do with that is she was talking about people, but I'm talking also about animals sure. and how they get in. And as you said at the beginning, 
it can be a predictive crime. If people are hurting animals in the home, they're then going to turn to the humans after that. And when, a, when, a, when, a, when if a, a woman in, in a situation of domestic abuse is able to escape and perhaps take a child or more with her uh, to yeah. some women's shelter somewhere, they typically don't harbor pets as well, do they? Um, they don't, but because the incident's becoming more widespread, um, they are sometimes trying to find foster homes for them, okay. temporary ones. And the SPCA, when they have space, because they do actually have physical buildings, they can do what's called a compassionate board. So the woman can get out, her pet can get safe, and everybody can start to try to move on with their lives. But then we have another crisis point, because we have so few housing uh, areas that will accept people and pets when they do want to finally move out and, and, you know, they're strong and healthy enough to do that. That's also a really bad choke point. Um, because our residential tenancy laws and a lot of our strata um, bylaws say you can't have a pet here. Yeah. Uh, Victoria, we're almost out of time. I'm always grateful for yours. It's great to have you back on. To someone listening to us right now who may either be in that situation themselves or know someone close to them who is in a situation where they're they're threatened, uh, they, they don't feel comfortable, uh, they're looking to escape, there are children possibly, there are animals involved. What, what is your recommendation? Well, I would recommend calling um, the Battered Women's Helpline or to call the SPCA. And remember that um, when people come to me for their pet custody case, it's one of the first questions I ask. Has there been violence here? It is that common. Hmm, that's uh, that's sad. Uh, But it's also good to know there are people like you out there, Victoria, fighting for the rights of animals and people in situations of abuse. And we do appreciate the work that you do and the time that you've taken to share it with us this morning. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. Victoria Schroff back with us from uh, UBC, where she's an animal law professor and, of course, is an animal rights lawyer. Well, the city of Vancouver sat down and listened to presentations from three economists this week to discuss the recovery. And keep in mind, uh, we've uh, forecast a $111 million deficit for Vancouver. 1,800 workers are still laid off. Community centers, pools, and many other civic facilities are shuttered. And uh, municipal municipalities are on the front line of taking the hit in the pandemic and they're going to have to be on the front lines of any recovery. Some of the words of the forecasters uh, who were addressing city council. We are lucky this morning to have economist uh, Jim Stanford with us to talk about this presentation, the pickle we find ourselves in and how on earth we're going to sort it all out. Jim, good morning and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Sterling. It's a pleasure, sir. Let's first of all talk about uh, Alex Himmelfarb and the other gentleman who made a presentation to City Council this week. Uh, did you catch any of it live, Jim? I, I didn't see it live, but I saw the reports and Alex's uh, submission I saw in writing as well. Okay, and what did you make of it? Were you, uh, by and large, on side with their predictions? And again, the three adjectives that uh, were used are slow, bumpy, and painful. Uh, this prescription is not desirable, but it's kind of real sounding, isn't it, Jim? Oh, 100%. Uh, those three economists were right on the money, uh, Sterling. I've been very worried about the fiscal vice that the cities and municipal governments are finding themselves in. You know, this uh, pandemic and the shutdown of part of our economy has been terrible for budgets uh, for all levels of government. But the, the, pro- the 
provinces and especially the federal government have got big fiscal firepower that they can use uh, to try and fight back. Municipalities don't. They just don't have the revenue tools. And in fact, they're required by law to try and balance their budgets, uh, their operating budgets every single year. So municipalities are really caught between a rock and a hard place here. Is there any latitude, and I know about the Municipalities Act and how here in British Columbia, mostly, Jim, cities are required by law to balance that budget on an annual basis. However, given the extraordinary circumstances we all share at the moment, in law, is there any latitude for uh, relaxing or, or any way dodging around those requirements, or do you just have to get it done no matter how? Yeah, I, I think that would be a disaster. You know, if we just said, well, you know, it is a, a tough time, but we'll just try to tighten our belt and, and, and follow that rule. I think this, this moment has shown why that rule is a wrong idea. And it's not just in BC. Most other provinces have the same uh, arrangement. Right. Now, in, in Canada, municipalities are a creation of the provincial government. It's the province that sets these kind of rules and that really uh, tells municipalities have to, how they have to function. So, Clearly, there could be some relief in this. It has to be the province, I'd say, moving quickly to provide, at least on an emergency, temporary basis, some relief from that requirement. But then also some resources to back up that um, that flexibility in the balanced budget law, because the cities don't have, again, the whole um, money-raising apparatus, you know, in terms of issuing bonds and, sure, and of course. financial markets and so on. I wanted to talk a little bit about wage subsidies, because in the presentation to City Council the other night, one of your colleagues said cities should be eligible for wage subsidies already offered to businesses with specific uh, attachments for whose revenues have declined by 30 percent or more, et cetera. Uh, We know that Canadians really got their backs up a few days ago, Jim, when we found out that political parties had applied for wage subsidies. This uh, struck us many of us as being just a few steps across the line. Do you think our reaction would be the same were cities to go for it? Mm, I don't think so, uh, Sterling. I, I think it's kind of uh, a rather arbitrary and, and I would say destructive exclusion that cities have not been allowed to use that uh, Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy Program. Um, Prime Minister Trudeau announced it a few weeks ago. It's $70 billion. The rationale for the program is very sensible. It's to say that in many cases, employers have lost the revenue and lost the business that allows them to keep their people on staff. Mm -hmm. But they're going to have to come back to life once this is over. So let's help them get through a bridge to the other side. And it maintains the connection between the employer and the employees. So the rationale is perfect, and it certainly applies to those frontline service workers that you mentioned in the outset, all the people who would normally work in libraries or public, you know, uh, public service, uh, community uh, development, right. uh, all of the things that city employees do. So that would be, a, I think, a really important way of helping a city like Vancouver and other cities in Canada to get through this coming period. Jim Stanford's with us this morning. Jim, yesterday the Prime Minister did announce uh, $14 billion to be made available under, again, certain conditions uh, to Canadian cities for this very specific recovery purpose. What did you make of that announcement, or was it, in fact, a re-announcement, as the Prime Minister is inclined to do from time to time? It's amazing, isn't it, Sterling? It's hardly another day goes by without uh, the Prime Minister going to that microphone in his yard and making another multi-billion dollar announcement. Exactly. It just tells you what extraordinary times we're in. Uh, And this was an important one. Um, 
it's going to the provinces. And again, the municipalities are creatures of the provinces. Mm-hmm. So some of the money uh, was earmarked, he said, to help keep transit systems going. We right. know that has to happen. So hopefully the provinces do the right thing and, and flow that money right through to the cities. Uh, so far, there has been no significant money for cities, and they've been excluded from things that were announced, like the wage subsidy. So right. Hopefully, this is the beginning of a recognition that cities need help. Was the exclusion of cities from the wage subsidy deliberate? And if so, why do you think it was uh, set right from the get-go that cities wouldn't be eligible? I suspect that it was part of the kind of federal-provincial wrangling going on behind the scenes. Like uh, The feds know that the provinces are responsible for what the cities do, and I think that they probably just didn't want to uh, jump over the provincial authority and also give the provinces in a way uh, a way out, uh, you know, let them off the hook. So I suspect that the $14 billion announced yesterday was in a resu- uh, the result of some ongoing negotiations between those two levels of government, the feds and the provinces, over exactly how cities would be treated. Jim Stanford is with us. Mr. Stanford is an economist and director of the Centre for Future Work and divides his time between Vancouver and Sydney, Australia. Jim is here in Vancouver this morning. And Jim, you wrote a piece recently, a couple of months ago now, called The Federal Support Package. The pros the cons, and the next shoe to drop. Now, keeping in mind that it was written in mid-March, and so, of course, we're quite a ways down the road, uh, the pros, uh, you basically said the government has responded really quickly. They recognized a crisis and uh, sort of threw caution to the winds and said, whatever it takes, we'll, we'll, we'll risk error rather than not getting money to people as quickly as possible. That was a big pro. Any other uh, uh, on the pro boxes to check before we get to the other stuff? Well, in the time uh, since that uh, initial announcement, Sterling, and that commentary that I wrote, they, they I think, have also proven their willingness to be flexible and, um, and to improve on the program and, and fill in the gaps that they missed. So uh, we have seen a, a series of announcements targeted at different uh, parts of the economy that need help getting through the pandemic. Uh, the, the resources uh, being committed are very large, and it's going to mean a big deficit this year, no doubt about it. No question about think, it. Uh, yeah, the government's been appropriately, uh, I think, ambitious and, and flexible and correcting their mistakes as they go. And on the con side, as we move to the other column, you say, while the program is creative and ambitious, it is still inadequate in its scale and in its reach. And, of course, you've already noted that this is a dated article. So subsequent to that, they have modified some programs. They have stepped up with new ones. Has that been, uh, is it approaching adequate from your point of view, uh, looking at the inadequacy of the original program. Yes, I think they deserve marks, uh, good marks for that, Sterling. I, I mean, the total value of the programs announced is now in the range of $250 billion, yeah. uh, including the $14 billion that was announced yesterday. The wage subsidy program was the biggest of those. So, you know, we've got a package there that's worth about 10% of Canada's annual GDP. So that's big by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and it's not going to prevent the recession. We're already in a recession, and we've seen GDP falling and employment falling, but it will certainly help us get through. Um, Right now, my bigger concern is to make sure that we don't view this as just a kind of short-term Band-Aid, a big Band-Aid, but a short-term time-limited thing. We are going to need continued support right through this autumn and at least for a couple more years after to try and get the economy back on its feet. Now, by support, you mean ongoing government subsidy programs to various sectors of the economy, or just are we talking more about like an extended CERB approach? 
Uh, I think it will take a, a bit of everything. We will certainly need income security for people who can't get back to work uh, quickly. Now, uh, yesterday we did have uh, the jobs numbers come out for May, and there was a glimmer of good news in there. We yeah. had almost 300,000 jobs created in Canada. Um, not enough compared to the 5 million that were lost of course. the previous two months, but at least we're heading in the right direction. But uh, we aren't going to repair that damage in short periods. So we're going to need income support, uh, including potentially the wage subsidy extension, um, or at least that um, that serve the, the, the broader uh, emergency relief benefit um, to carry on for months, if not years. I also think government's going to have to play a, a leading role in, in, in starting up the kind of economic engines. Uh, so this is going to mean infrastructure investment, uh, direct public service creation, even hiring onto the public sector. That can be an important way to try and get the economic ball rolling as we crawl back from this uh, deep downturn. Yeah, you did mention a number, though, Mr. Stanford, a moment or so ago that uh, you, you used one point of, of expressing it. I'm going to turn it around to a quarter of a trillion dollars <laughs> is, is, is the debt that we now have incurred literally in 90 days, Jim. Yes. Uh, that's, that's scary and staggering all at once. It is, and and this is a scary, staggering time. And I do think that, you know, there was a lot to worry about out there right now. Uh, First and foremost, uh, keeping yourself and your loved ones safe. Um, I'm not worried about the size of the debt. I think the government's doing the right thing. And we've also put in place some measures to help us manage that debt. Uh, The key one being we've got interest rates down to close to zero, and the Bank of Canada itself uh, as has happened in other countries, is now buying up that debt directly. Indeed. So the Bank of Canada is helping to finance it, and, and that will keep it very affordable as long as they continue to do the right thing. Were you surprised, you, you don't say you referred to yesterday's job numbers as a glimmer of hope that we are indeed uh, uh, returning this thing around pivot. There's the big buzzword, pivoting and, and on the fly and, and starting to see a, a return to, and normal is in quotes, Jim, it's not going to be normal for a, a long time, but were you encouraged by yesterday's perhaps surprising job numbers? Oh, sure. Yeah, I did not expect to see a positive number. Uh, 40,000 jobs of those were in BC. So uh, the, the, uh, the re- rebound is being experienced here as well. Um, Ontario, unfortunately, is still losing jobs. They lost 60,000 jobs in, in May. And Ontario is the place where, of course, the uh, new infection rates have been stubbornly high. Yeah. So, uh, I am worried about that. Um, and, of course, you know, I guess you could say if you stop beating your head against the wall, it feels good. <laughs> and uh, a little bit of rebound after 5 million effective job losses in March and April, uh, at least it's not getting worse. So, you know, without being complacent and saying, okay, the worst is over, uh, we're still going to need that government leadership that I talked about to get the uh, the cylinders in our economic engine firing. But at least we're heading in the right direction. So I, I was pleased by that. Uh, Jim, you wrote a piece recently for the other half of your life and client base down in Australia for the Australia Institute Center for Future Work. And the piece was all about, it was entitled, Pandemic Shows Australia Needs Domestic Manufacturing. Now, I found of all the stuff that I was flipping through doing homework for finding, mm-hmm. uh, t- tracking you down, I found that of all the stuff you've written about Australia, this was the most easily transferable to Canada. You could easily substitute Canada in that headline and probably write pretty much the same piece. Would you agree? 
You're 100% right, Sterling. I, I've been working in Australia, you know, part of the time for about four years, and I'm always struck by the comparisons between the two countries, so many similarities. But this is one where we absolutely are both in the same boat. Both economies very resource-dependent. Uh, both economies, you know, have had some benefits from resource expansion in recent years, but the downsides uh, apparent as well. And one of them has been the erosion of manufacturing in both countries. Yeah. It's gone worse in Australia. We, I think, have done a better job in Canada of maintaining at least a critical mass for successful manufacturing. Um, but in both cases, I think the pandemic is forcing us to recognize a modern country needs to be able to make important stuff, right. like medical equipment. Indeed, indeed. It's interesting, Australia seems to be far more comfortable antagonizing its biggest client, China, than Canada does. Uh, in fact, they've incurred the wrath of China a couple of times uh, over the Wuhan virus and, and looking for an investigation as to the source, etc., joining other countries. Canada has not done that. Uh, is that a precipitous uh, situation for Australia to put itself in, kind of putting itself uh, even more at the mercy of its biggest client? I suspect that's one of the reasons Canada hasn't done anything because we are so utterly dependent on china for uh, buying our rocks and trees let alone anything we actually make yeah i I, i'm kind of puzzled frankly sterling by the government's approach to this issue in australia um australia sells rocks to china as well that's about all they sell right Uh, rocks and and higher education interestingly thousands and thousands of chinese students who will go to australian universities and we have some of that obviously in canada as well um I think, frankly, it's more about domestic politics, uh, what those statements were about, than about real geopolitics. I think the government there was trying to sort of play to a certain base uh, in the political uh, arena in Australia. So I I honestly don't think that much is going to come of it. Interesting. So back to the point you tried to make, though, which is a a modern economy like Australia, or certainly Canada, can do much better in terms of its its manufacturing domestic base and be less reliant upon cheaper, for sure, sourced goods from other parts of the world. We're going to have to expect as part of that, though, Jim, final question to you here. If we are indeed going to uh, boost our manufacturing center, do consumers understand that that's likely to mean a little more cost at the domestic end. Right. Yeah, I I think that is a a fair point, and that is a bit of the trade-off. We've been governed by this whole mentality that the cheapest is the best, and we've seen supply chains that get stretched out around the world because somebody could get a widget, you know, for five cents cheaper uh, from some remote factory in, in rural China somewhere. But we've just seen the downside of that, which is those supply chains are very, very vulnerable. Um, also, because our resource industries are in a big downturn, we have to diversify our economic base. So that's another reason why I think this will be good. Consumers may pay a bit more, but I think they're more likely to have a decent job from which to buy those things. Interesting stuff. Jim Stafford, a real pleasure to have you on the program this morning, sir. We'd like to do this again as uh, this continues. Uh, and it's going to be a while, as you quite accurately predict, and we all sense in our bones uh, it's going to be a while before anything resembling normal is part of our lives again. Much appreciate your joining us this morning, Jim. Thank you very much, Sterling. My pleasure. Indeed. There's Jim Stanford from the Center for Future Work. Very interesting fellow. Economist. Sport is returning to British Columbia in accordance with the phases outlined in our restart plan. And at the request of the province, Via Sport has led the creation of a set of guidelines on how to resume sport while operating safely during this COVID pandemic. Here to talk about that is the CEO of Via Sport, Charlene Krapakevich. Charlene, good morning. Welcome to the program. 
Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. You know, we've been all following the headlines. We know that baseball is scrapping with its players and trying to work out a schedule. We know the Canucks are going to play the Minnesota Wild eventually. (laughs) Uh, Basketball is organizing a schedule. Uh, Football is determined to go this fall. And so we know what the pros are doing because the sporty types on air tell us about it. But there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of little players, all their money. Moms and dads and coaches and managers and referees, anxious as all get out to get back out onto the field. How are we doing? Well, yeah, very good point. Um, uh, amateur sport is very big in British Columbia and plays a very important part and, and role in bringing communities together, providing, obviously, uh, activities to improve um, physical and mental health and uh, and all the other wonderful benefits that sport delivers. And, mm-hmm. you know, in fact, Sterling, uh, we have um, about 800,000 registered members of amateur sport in the province in the over 4,000 communities. So amateur sport is very, very big and important um, in, in every community around the province. And so you're right. The, the Ministry of Tourism, Arts and Culture asked Via Sport to prepare a set of guidelines to help amateur sport organizations look at how they could reintroduce sport into our communities. And so uh, Via Sport is a, is a nonprofit society, and, and we work with the sport organizations and government to provide guidelines and training and education and also funding to advance uh, and grow amateur sport in the province. Okay. So earlier this week, um, we uh, finalized our plan and published our plan. It's on our website, uh, viasport.ca. And so now... What's going to happen is all the sport organizations, uh, amateur sport organizations, are going to look at these overarching guidelines and say, okay, how do we introduce our sport back into the community based on these guidelines? So, um, for example, there's sort of a number of things that we've asked sports to, sport organizations to consider. One is, you know, um, adjusting their programming. This is the biggest thing that we'll see is that sport will return, um, or most sports will return, uh, but it will, it'll be different, and it'll be different from community to community. And, and um, so here's why. So we've asking sport organizations to obviously allow for physical distancing, so they have to figure out how do they do that within their sport. Um, so that may mean, um, you know, more equipment or individualized equipment. They need to, they need to have, um, you know, cones to ensure that um, the participants stay two meters apart. Yeah, I'm thinking of, um, the, of the players sitting on the bench in the dugout or on the sidelines waiting for their turn to go into the game. They typically huddle up and then they're all super close together. So clearly, even just waiting for your turn on the bench is going to involve a certain amount of distancing, isn't it? Exactly. And even simple things like high-fiving and handshaking and hugging. I mean, so these are things that we normally do when we're playing sports. Yep. But um, So in this phase of the pandemic, there's got to be... Um, uh, you know, some real thought around how do we reintroduce sport and keep everybody safe. Mm-hmm. So with these guidelines now published, the sport organizations are going to um, finalize their own plans and then work with their clubs and associations around the province to implement the plans. And so we'll see a, a gradual return to sport um, in communities, but it may not look the same in every community even because some local clubs might not quite have um, the resources or the volunteers or um, the equipment just yet, uh, and a neighboring community might have all of that. So right. 
uh, right? So every every sport um, will have a set of guidelines, and um, every community will work with these guidelines to slowly introduce the sport back into the community. Yeah, Charlene, it's interesting because, you know, when you go to anybody's business now, anywhere in Metro Vancouver, the first thing you notice is plexiglass. Everybody's got mm-hmm. plexiglass, and, and it doesn't matter what establishment you're going into, you're going to have a mm-hmm. plexiglass barrier between you and your service person. Uh, and, and now, clearly, that's not... But you're talking about new equipment for sports organizations. It would be their equivalent of plexiglass, wouldn't it? I doubt that you're going to get much plexiglass in sporting venues. Or are you trying to? Uh, no. So in, in this case... Um uh, the facilities of obviously will have plexiglass, you know, at check-in and so on. Sure. But the activity of sport, um, you know, is is for the most part in this phase there will, will be outside. There might be some indoor um, sport activity depending on the facilities, et cetera. But for the most part in this phase, we're recommending, you know, sport to be outside. Mm-hmm. And so um, really separating uh, the players, um, you know, looking at that 50-person uh, maximum, how do we do that? Back, you know, thinking about parents mm-hmm. and fans. Uh, how do you get the players in and out of the, the dugout or uh, in, a, in a safe way? So there's quite a few things each sport organization has to plan for and then, you know, obviously educate and train their clubs so that they can deliver that in the community. So uh, and, the, and the other thing that we're looking at, at least in this phase, is because of the sort of the physical distancing um, requirement is, Activities will be mostly sort of individual uh, sort of training and skill development. So drills and, and, and those kinds of things for now um, and sort of in-club play and not uh, league play. Oh, okay. So, uh, mm-hmm. so we're, we're, we're um, encouraging uh, organizations not to travel, obviously, that to keep the activities within their club and not to look at, um, you know, uh, inter-club or, or, or league play. Um, you know, you want to kind of keep your bubble close. So um, this is what we'll see in this first phase. So a lot of, a lot of house uh, league stuff as opposed to intramural, to use a, a, an athletic, uh, a, a, a post-secondary kind of analogy. Still, uh, I think from the point of view of the 800,000 players that you talked <laughs> about a few minutes ago, they don't really care what they do as long as they can get the heck outdoors, see a few familiar faces, <laughs> and maybe kick a ball around. Obviously, the desire, yeah. the desire to play the game competitively will eventually surface, but I think in the short term, uh, as long as they can get at it, they'll be happy, don't you think? Oh, I think so. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, a, a lot of pent-up um, desire to return to sport. For and, sure. and, and really that, you know, demonstrates how valuable amateur sport is in our communities. And, you know, for the most part, uh, amateur sport is, is delivered by local clubs, local associations. And yes. these are volunteer-based organizations. And so... Uh, you know, depending on their own circumstances, it might take a little bit of time to, to organize, but, you know, we're getting there. Um, the government asked for, um, you know, a set of guidelines, and so now that's available, and, and each sport now will thoughtfully and carefully look at how do they do that in the most safe way so that we can continue to see, you know, uh, you know reduction of, of COVID-19. I mean, at the end of the day, we want to, you know, we want to see that curve flatten and stay flattened. Sure. And, um, so. 
you know, we have to kind of approach this uh, cautiously and, and, and slowly. Charlene, last question, and we're grateful for your time this morning. Do you have to approve the individual plans of those sporting organizations before they can actually implement them? No, no. Okay. Via Sport doesn't have um, an approval uh, role. Uh, we've prepared the guidelines, right. and then each um, each sport organization uh, would work with the like the provincial um, sport body, like uh, Soccer BC or Hockey BC, gotcha. and and uh, have a plan in place. And they will have to have a safety plan. Each club at the local level will have to have a safety plan in order to rent facilities. But um, that's all outlined in the guidelines and. Um, uh, it should be pretty straightforward with templates and so on uh, that Good are stuff. available. Viasport.ca, yeah. if you're in any uh, any doubt about this, viasport.ca. And there's uh, Via Sport CEO Charlene Krapikevich. Thanks, Charlene. Appreciate it. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.